Once again, we come to the end of a week and say, wow, what a week. Here we are in either the sixth or seventh week of a statewide stay-home order. Many businesses are closed and none of us are having a good time. But now the repercussions are hitting more broadly, like the footprint of a mushroom cloud rolling away from a bomb. Today, we have two segments about that, one on the city of Detroit's finances and another on how we're supposed to conduct public business in the age of social distancing. This is Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 104 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. My first guest today is Eric Lufer, our president, and a person who recently spent a lot of time with the city of Detroit's CAFR, or Comprehensive Annual Financial Report. Welcome, Eric. Hello, everyone. Yes. I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope they are, too. Um, <laughs> we are, uh, needless to say, pretty socially distant, distant from one another, but relying on the same technology that everyone else is, uh, who's able to work at home is probably relying on. So occasionally there are audio issues. Occasionally there are drops in connection. Um, let's just get our fingers crossed and uh, forge ahead and hope everything goes well. Yeah. So, if everyone could stay offline for the next 20 minutes, we'll get this done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, in a nutshell, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the short version of what kind of financial situation the city of Detroit is likely to find itself in um, as we go forward in this pandemic. So the city finance department is projecting a... $100 million shortfall in the fiscal year we're in now. The city fiscal year runs from July to June, so they have just a few months left. Um, and then roughly $250 million in the next fiscal year. So given such a short time with this fiscal year, they're trying to deal with the whole problem all at once, and that's a $350 million problem that they're addressing. Right. Out of a... Um, annual budget of about a billion. About right. a billion. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, that is quite a um, drop <laughs> for any house. I mean, this is kind of like a household that has lost a significant um, chunk of its income. It's just, you know, and it happened so quickly and and all and so suddenly that nobody was really prepared for it. So let's uh, maybe unpack a little bit of, about this and kind of look briefly at the big pieces of Detroit's um, revenue stream. Um, where does Detroit get its money? So Detroit is unlike most other cities in Michigan. Um, most other cities get their money either from property taxes, uh, well, cumulatively from property taxes and state revenue sharing. And then we have 23 other cities uh, that have an income tax like Detroit. Detroit uh, gets its money from income taxes as its biggest source. 
casino wagering taxes as its second biggest source, but most consistent source, and then state revenue sharing, and then property taxes. So, it, of course, it does levy property taxes at a, at a very high rate, but even at that very high rate, the tax base is so relatively small that it is a um, the fourth biggest source of uh, revenue for the city, where for all other cities, almost all other cities, um, it's the biggest revenue source by far. And the um, income tax and the casino tax together make up almost half of its um, the revenue pie, right? Almost half, and um, and then when you you know put in those other two revenue sources, that's seventy five percent roughly of all the revenue, um, and then they get you know charges and fees and different things. We pay to use the gazebos and the parks or you know, what have you, recreational facility fees, things like that. Sure. And then they get a, a piece from the federal government as well, right? A, a small slice of the pie. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, I think we all know um, that, you know, at a time when it's, it's some people are not working at all, some people have been furloughed. Um, in the hopes that when this is over or when it eases up a little bit, they might be able to go back to work. Um, Some people have lost their jobs outright and probably won't be going back. So income tax is probably going to take a pretty serious hit um, this year and next. But the one that has really gone from uh, down to zero pretty much has been this casino tax because the casinos are closed. Right. Right. So, yeah, so the income tax, uh, the cities, all cities in Michigan work under the same law. They get their, um, they tax businesses in the city, um, residents, regardless of whether you work in the city or not. If you're a resident of that city, you pay the city income tax. And then non-residents who come into the city. So, uh, as you say, there's, you know, economy is shut down. There's some essential workers. There's some people. Um, able to work from home, but if you're a non-resident who typically works in the city, this time that you're working from home, um, you're not working in the city. So even though uh, those people are working for a business that's located in the city and their office is in the city, if they're working from home, this time is not going to be taxable under the city income tax. So it's it's sort of a double whammy for all the cities that have an income tax in Michigan. Part of the tax form, it asks what percent of your time working was worked in that city where the tax is levied and what spent elsewhere. So you could have accountants or or others that are on the road a fair amount, and they're going to calculate office time versus um, you know time on the road, and and say uh, half my time was in this was in the office, therefore in the city, and half of it was in Southfield and Birmingham and, you know, elsewhere. Um, so under normal circumstances, that goes on. And now we have the added uh, shutdown where everyone who's able to work remotely, um, if you're not a city, a city resident, then you're going to be figuring out that since March 15th or March 12th or something like that, you've been working remotely and... Um, that's going to take a major chunk out of that non-resident income hmm. tax share. I didn't even think of that. So, yeah. So, there so, you, so the, yeah. Okay, so go on. Yeah, so then we get to the casino tax. And, of course, the casinos were shut down. Boom. 
about a week after they introduced the sports book, the ability to board, uh, bet on sporting events, uh, which they were, were counting on to be a major new source of revenue. Um, for the city of Detroit, of course, host three different casinos, the only three casinos in the state that are non-tribal. Uh, those revenues, the casino wagering tax revenues coming to the city was about half a million dollars a day. That's so amazing. <laughs> yeah, just going from mid-March when they shut down March 16th, and we know they're not going to open during April, so there's 45 days. Um, let's you know, do yeah. the quick math. Uh, several $20 million $20 million. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, sort of reading the tea leaves when you listen to Fauci and others, um, they're not going to open on May 1st. We don't know when they're going to open. So that just, you keep the tally going on how much tax revenue the city's losing because of that. Mm -hmm. And that, what a, what a, uh, what a rich revenue stream that, that was and how you said before, how reliable it is. I mean, there is nothing like a gambler for, or gambling rather for, uh, a, you know, a uh, a stream that you know is never going to go dry. People are always going to gamble, so that was that was smart we, to do. But nobody ever we understand. We understand now why Las Vegas and Atlantic City and others have gone so big on it. It's a consistent source of revenue. I, you know, I'm not a gambler. Um, to me, it's sort of ironic that your most consistent source of revenue are people gaming. Yeah, you know, it's sort of it's a it's by nature a risk uh, enterprise. Uh, you know, the house always wins. They say so. I guess you could count on it. But I just think of it as it's sort of ironic that that's your most consistent source of revenue. Right, and you see why once um, once gaming began to be approved in individual states, um, why even uh, communities that considered themselves, you know. Uh, morally upright and so forth were suddenly willing to kind of bend the rules f to to allow a casino in town because you know it's just it's a it's a cash cow and uh, or a, a goose that lays golden eggs and you, you know people are always looking for a way to deflect um, you know the, the the cost of governance from um, from taxpayers it's like you know soak the gamblers but Anyway, so so at the same time now that this is that these these uh, revenues are drying up or or trickling or, or slowing to a trickle, um, costs are also going up for the city, and um, well, some are is some of it's kind of steep. Yeah, Nancy, let's hit on the state revenue sharing real quick too okay. before we move on to the expenditure right. side. So, um, the state revenue sharing, there's two parts of it: a constitutional part, which is a per capita. So for every person in the city, they get a set amount, and that's based on the sales tax revenues that come in. So um, at the same time, people aren't working. We know that retail sales have um, gone to a trickle, right? They're not closed down. You can still buy things online. You can still uh, make a remote purchase and then go and they put it in your trunk or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not zero, but it is significantly below what it normally would be. And that's going to affect Detroit and every other unit of government in Michigan. Um, every other city, village, and township, I should be more specific. Mm -hmm. The other part is what we call statutory revenue sharing, and that's a um, 
an amount that the legislature decides to appropriate to local governments, and it goes through sort of a convoluted formula. There's a lot of history we don't need to go into. But to tr- out of $250 million roughly, Detroit gets 55% of that money. Now, every time we've had a recession in the last 30 years, the first thing the legislature tries to do is balance its budget by looking at what's discretionary it can easily cut. And 20 years ago, the local governments were the whipping boy of the state, and uh, it's taken roughly $12 billion over many years from local governments so that the state could keep its budget balanced. We can expect that this time around, and that's going to affect Flint and Lansing and Grand Rapids and a lot of the suburban communities, but it's really going to affect Detroit because, as I say, more than half that money was from that pot was going to Detroit. So, you know, we have that income tax, we have the casino tax, and if the legislature, as we can expect, looks at statutory revenue sharing as a means of balancing its budget and it has very significant revenue problems of its own, um, that's going to sort of be kicking the city of Detroit while it's down. Um, very significant impact if they do that. Wow. <laughs> so, okay then. So now let's talk about costs. Um, they've, you know, they've got... Um, <laughs> The problem with uh, the with government is, generally speaking, the costs stay the same even when the uh, when the revenue goes down, and in some cases the cost has gone up. I mean, let's talk a little bit about what uh, what the city finds itself spending its money on this in this period. Yeah, so the thing to know about local government is it's a service industry. Um, there's you know investment in fire trucks and, and buildings and things like that, but governments provide services to people. And when you have to address cost, you're not going to sell a fire truck. You're not going to, um, your, 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 your capital costs are fixed. You have to pay the heat, the rec centers, whether they're open or closed. Um, so you have to address that with people. And what we see on the people side is that we've had a lot of frontline workers, police, EMS, firefighters, who've been very active through all this because Detroit's population has been severely affected by the COVID virus um, to the point where a significant share of the fire of the police department was asked to stay home, self-quarantine. Um, and that means everyone who's left who's not staying home has to pick up those hours and do more, and now you're paying overtime costs for them. Right. Uh, to the extent that they've kept the DDOT buses running, they have to spend more time you know, cleansing them, sanitizing them, and they have to run at a smaller capacity. Uh, it's always been a problem in southeast Michigan that the buses are not running at full capacity, and now we're purposefully saying you need to space out if you have to use those buses. So To enable so passengers to have social distance. Exactly. Right. So okay. that's that's you know, sort of intentionally creating inefficiencies in that system. Um, as I said, the rec centers are closed down, so the staff um, are idle there. They're still getting paid as of right now, um, and and the city has you know transitioned the TCF center to uh, a field a, hospital, a, a field hospital, a medical facility. Um, 
a lot of what they do in items like that should be reimbursed under the money, the $150 million that the federal government set aside for state and local governments to address their COVID-related cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but that takes the sh- TCF Center offline for six months at least and cancels the Detroit Auto Show. Which was yeah. which brought in um, tourism and a lot of um, economic you know impact spending, so there's that too. Right, the uh, the Grand Prix's been canceled, the the auto show, things that would have been bringing people into the city, staying in hotels, buying restaurant meals. Um, it just has such a trickle down effect that affects the city in so many ways. And then, of course, we have the um, the elephant uh, not in the wings or not in the uh, room yet, but waiting in the wings, which is the um, 2024 um, pension bomb. I don't want to say bomb, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, explain that. That was a uh, yeah. that was part of the grand bargain, but you, you'll do better than I will. Yeah. So you recall the, the bankruptcy, the biggest takeaway, the people, thing people remember, the grand bargain where they save the art in the DIA by uh, soliciting funds from foundations and wealthy individuals and some companies to come up with the amount, uh, rough estimate amount of what they could have gotten by selling off the art and putting that into a trust to uh, also at the same time lessen the burden on the pensioners, this former city employees, retirees that were collecting a pension. So that grand bargain um, was being is being used uh, for for three more years, and Detroit has able to use its operating costs instead of paying the pension funds to invest in IT to hire quality people to do all the things to help the city get back on its feet. Right, and then twenty twenty four. That ends, and the city is back in the business of uh, of paying part of its the revenue it generates using that to pay the pension cost, the actuarial cost, and the, the normal cost of uh, paying down the pension and um, funding that going forward. Uh, so it's it's a significant burden when it starts up again. Detroit has a lot of pensioners, and they. Um, when you start adding that up, it, it's a lot of money. Uh, under the Duggan administration, they have very prudent that even though they don't need to make that payment last year, the year before, this year, or next year, they've been putting money aside out of their, um, some going into a rainy day fund, but some going into what they call a, a retiree protection trust fund. And that's been invested, right? Just you would prudently do that to not put it under your mattress, but put it where it's going to earn interest right. and and grow. Well, my pension, your pension, and, and trust funds all over America, all over the world have been impacted by this recession. Um, and the money they thought that was going to be there is going to be a smaller amount. It's not gone, not going right. to do it. Um, but it's much smaller. And the best of intentions, the prudent actions they were taking, um, reality set in, and, and now they're um, 
No, they're yeah. scrambling today to fix today's problem. But when that gets done, then they start scrambling again to plan for 2024 and, and what comes for, at that point. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I, I sent you a note after you submitted this for editing, and I said this has just been a real ray of sunshine. But, you know, there's really, you know, it really underlines, um, and we should probably say that if there's, there's one, I don't want to call it a bright spot, but if there's one thing that... Uh, we can say about this whole situation, whether it's our personal situation or the public or or a public entity situation like Detroit, is that we're we're all in it together. I mean, it's happening to everybody. Um, there are very few. I don't think anybody in this country is not going to be significantly affected by this um, in one way or another. And so, you know, there are going to be other cities in this um, state of affairs, maybe not as dire as Detroit's. Um, because of our unique situation that we just talked about. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of people trying to figure this out as we go. It's like it's we're flying on instruments, but the weather radar's out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, as I said, there's 23 other cities in Michigan that levy an income tax. Most of them use it to supplement their property tax. It's not the primary source of income. So, um that doesn't diminish the fact that they're going to have budget problems going forward. It just isn't going to be at the same level as Detroit. Um, the property tax, as I said, is the biggest source of revenue for most local governments. And um, it's possible that the property tax will be affected, I expect, mostly on the residential and not on the residential, but on the commercial and industrial side as businesses are closed, as um, they look for relief going forward. I'll be surprised if it really affects the residential side. So for most local governments, their biggest fear is what happens with state revenue sharing through all of this. Um, the, the property tax, the assessments went out in January and February. The fact that your house may or may not be worth less today than it was a year ago is sort of irrelevant at this point. Um, and, and the economists are sort of projecting a V-shaped recession where it sort of bounced back, not as fast as it went down, but um, in a fairly short amount of time. And then we get back to where we were. So if I were investing in real estate, I wouldn't be too afraid of this. I I think things are going to get back to where they were and your real estate property will be fine. And therefore, the local governments that rely on that as their source of revenue will be fine. Um, it doesn't feel good now, and it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, not knowing how long this is going to go on and, and what the implications are. Um, but I think this is Detroit really is being affected. There's other local governments that will be affected to a smaller amount. Um, I think for most local governments, this is an annoyance, and they're dealing with the health of their residents, and they're dealing with... Um, Open Meetings Act and Freedom of Information and their inability to do business as usual, but it's not going to be a huge financial loss for them. Mm -hmm. But for Detroit, it's because of its unique situation, though, it's going to it's a much harder blow. So, yes. So this is I think they call this a a black swan event, you know, which is the uh, the disruptive twist that that nobody saw coming. And um, I guess now we all know what it's like to live through it. So anyway, well, thank you very much, Eric. This is always enlightening to talk to you. And uh, 
let's keep our fingers crossed for Michigan's largest city and for all the rest of them as well. So hunker down and we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Okay. Thanks. Bye. All right. And now we turn to another bit of public business, which is the public's business. Uh, even though we are all locked down in our separate um, cells, the public's business has to go on. And this is kind of a significant time of year for a lot of that. Budgets are being written. Some ordinances and are being passed to deal with the pandemic. So we're, we find ourselves having to meet under some rules that are having to be modified on the fly. And Jill Roof, our researcher who deals with local government, just wrote a blog about this on crcmich.org, and we're going to talk about that now. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, from over on the other side of the state. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Open Meetings Act and what it requires from um, Michigan's uh, boards and councils and so forth. Okay. Um, well, basically, it requires that public bodies meet in public um, so that they don't do business in private, that anyone is allowed to attend. They have the right to record them, uh, broadcast the proceedings. Um, governments may not require people to register or provide their name in order to, to attend. They have to provide public notice. It's basically a safeguard to make sure that government is doing business in the public sphere with the public's knowledge. Right. And this is the, this is the law that allows um, anybody to, you know, go to any board council, township board, city council, whatever uh, Mm -hmm. meeting to attend it, to record it if they like. Um, This allows journalists to come in. Uh, This requires a certain notice be made, what, 24 hours in advance so that we have, so they can't, you know, just convene on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, these are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, different aspects to this that sort of protect our right to to see how the sausage is being made. Um, however, unlike a couple of other states, it doesn't have an emergency clause in it, does it? Um, not that I am aware of, no. Um, it does not, doesn't have any avenue for remote participation or um, emergency clause like that. Right. So here we are in a pandemic and we're supposed to be staying um, six feet away from each other at the bare minimum. We're supposed to be wearing masks um, and we're generally not supposed to be meeting in a in a close conference room or or council meeting room um, exchanging our germs. So let's talk a little bit about how the various, um, legislative bodies in Michigan have been coping with this. Now the legislature, the state legislature came back for a one day session. Um, I believe it was last week or week before last. Um, how did they, how did they cope? What did they do? Um, well, they took, um, measures to try to be as safe as possible. Um, not all members of the legislature came in, but they, they definitely had a quorum in both the house and Senate. Um, they took temperatures, they social distanced. Um, I, lots were wearing masks, though I don't think everyone was. Um, and they would come on the floor in small groups or, um, one at a time to, to not have a large group together. At any time. Okay. So they were able to do it. Did they end up, um, I think we, you talked about how one uh, state legislature, I can't remember which one, actually ended up meeting in a basketball arena? Yes. Um, in Arkansas. In state Arkansas. House. Right. Yep, so state House members met in a college basketball arena. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something to see. 
the uh, did they end up doing? Did they do anything like that in Michigan? I think you said something like they could per- potentially expand into the visitors' gallery so that people could be farther apart, or did they just do the small groups thing? Um, I think that they were expanding into um, the gallery, and but they didn't meet any in any larger um, institution, like any arena or anything like that. But I do think they. Um, expanded in the capital. Right. Okay. So they didn't take your advice or your suggestion that they could go down to the Breslin Center, which would have been really something to see. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So that's the state legislature. Um, How are the various locals, uh, local units coping with this? Now, this is where we probably should bring in um, some technology. Uh, We have all sort of become familiar with a new platform for meeting remotely called Zoom, which is not without its flaws. Um, I think there's something called Microsoft Teams. Um, there's various there's various sort of home, uh, um, you know, sof- software and, and platforms that allow people to have simultaneous meetings where they can at least see everybody's face mm-hmm. um, from mm-hmm. their individual homes. And some some local gr- units have been using this, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, I don't know what every different local government is doing. And I kind of was looking at what does the law say um, and looking at some examples of what different local units are doing. But definitely some are doing remote Zoom type meetings. Um, some are maybe still meeting or were still meeting, but practicing social distancing and encouraging the public to participate uh, via Internet in some way rather than coming to the meeting. Um, you know, we had, we looked at what other states were doing, uh, Seattle city council and some local units that were hit earlier have been meeting remotely since early March. So Hmm. there's a lot of examples of different, what different local units are doing. Right. And we've all become, uh, at least some of us anyway, have become familiar with some of the, um, shall we say bugs in some of these platforms. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this new uh, phenomenon which has come to be called Zoom bombing, which is uh, which happens because these Zoom uh, meetings, if they're public, they can't really be password protected, which means anybody can come in. Mm -hmm. And because Zoom is um, allows for at least a certain amount of anonymity, people can come in and disrupt the meeting, which has happened. I think that happened in Grosseal. I think. Kalamazoo had that problem too. Yeah, I was going to say I thought Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's um, it's it doesn't always work out the way it is supposed to. There's a lot of people with too much time on their hands. Um, yes. <laughs> given that we don't know when this era or when this period is going to end, I mean, it could conceivably go on for another year or, or longer. Um, this is going to be an imperfect solution for a lot of local units, particularly in some of the rural areas for a fairly simple reason, which is the lack of, of broadband in, in some parts Mm -hmm. of Michigan. Yes, definitely. Um, if you, if you, if the government itself doesn't have the resources, but, um, more likely if, uh, residents don't have the broadband internet, then it's, it's really hard to participate. That's true. So, you know, and if you don't, I don't know. It's kind of like the uh, the promise of telemedicine, which is is one of those things that um, uh, sounds great, but it's 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 hard if you are in a rural area that has either no or very 
spotty connections to broadband to have any sort of um, meaningful connectivity to a meeting going on somewhere else. Yes, yes. Okay. And and while local governments, you know, the executive order is trying to provide them flexibility to meet remotely and do these things, it does not um, remove the responsibility for them to uh, have public meetings and to make sure the public can be part of government in mm-hmm. these meetings. So it's essentially the state, I mean, the, the law basically says, figure it out, make it work, right? I Yeah, I mean, That's I think about, we're all figuring it out as we go. Yeah, I think we all are too. I think one of the more entertaining parts of this blog that you wrote, Jill, was when you mentioned that um, in some uh, localities, there they might even be able to have meetings outdoors, which is kind of an appealing site on a warm uh, Michigan summer evening to to have people mm-hmm. sort of spread out on a lawn in their lawn chairs. That, <laughs> that could be very pleasant with the audio, but it kind of it kind of loses its appeal as um, as cold weather sets in. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jill. Um, it's been great talking to you. How are you uh, doing over there in Holland? Uh, same same as everyone. We're adapting to work, school, everything at home. Yeah, I know. It's I, I love my house, but I, I'm really itching to get outside. So, okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, stay safe, stay warm, and uh, we'll talk next time. Thank you. Okay. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit, thanks to Michigan's corporations, foundations, and generous individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click the Get Involved tab on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmish at crcmish.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm.